it's, it's easy to see why some people like the seagull. I'm not one of them, by the way. But seagulls, when they fly, seem to exult in their freedom. They thrust their wings with great power and they climb to heights and soar downward in majestic loops and spirals. And seagulls constantly perform as if a movie camera were trained on them. But those majestic birds can have their dignity and their beauty melt into a sordid sloth of infighting and cruelty in the blink of an eye. Have you ever seen a seagull fight with other seagulls? It doesn't take much to cause one of these birds to turn on another. They will dive bomb a flock of their fellow feathered friends, causing a flurry of angry squawks all over a small morsel of food. By their very nature, they seem to be mean, jealous, and competitive creatures. And they seem to enjoy fighting with each other. I once read that they are so mean that if you were to tie a red ribbon to the foot of a seagull, you have essentially just sentenced that bird to death by execution. See, the other seagulls will ambush that bird. They will peck at it and they will pummel it until not only have they drawn its blood, but they have killed it. Now, we'd like to think that we're better than seagulls, wouldn't we? That we don't have those same animal-like instincts. But sadly, we know that that just isn't the case. From the horror of mass school shootings to stories of domestic violence that tear families apart, from great world wars to terrorist attacks, there is an ugliness in the heart of mankind, the heart which Jeremiah says is desperately sick. Whenever we hear of yet another violent horrific act, the narrative surrounding it remains the same as that of the one before it. We ask ourselves, what could we have done to prevent it? How can we make the world a safer place for our children? What laws can we pass that will protect the innocent? How do we soften the ugliness of humanity? In short, what do we do about the wars that wage around us. This morning as we continue in our series through the book of James, we find ourselves in chapter 4 and in a text which deals with wars, the fights and the quarrels of our lives. I want to invite you to turn with me to James chapter 4 and we will read verses 1 through 12 together. James chapter 4 verses 1 through 12. I'm reading to you from the English Standard Version of the Bible. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. 
Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? May the Lord add his blessing to this reading from his holy word. Written to young Christians in the throes of persecution and trials, often because of their faith, James addresses what must have been conflicts that had arisen in these early churches to whom he wrote. While we don't know the specific types of conflicts that existed, it doesn't take much of the stretch of our imagination to conjure examples. Church members who were inflexible about issues from the color of carpet to the style of music. Christians who maneuvered for the same position of authority or leadership in the church and stepped on one another to get there. Feuds that erupted between families that were fueled by vicious gossip. And that's just in the church, not to speak of the conflicts that arise in our everyday lives. Author, commentator, and preacher Warren Wearsby suggested three types of wars we see in this passage. And for the purpose of outlining them this morning, I've called this section the tale of three wars. Not a tale in the sense of a fictitious story, but a tale in the sense of a narrative. A narrative which tells the story of our lives as Christians and our lives together as the church. For these wars aren't just theoretical, they're not just hypothetical situations. No, they speak of real situations in James' day as well as in ours. The first of the three wars, if you're following along in your outlines, is the war with others. If you look at your text beginning in verse 1, James says what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you. The word quarrel in Greek means a battle, a battle without material weapons, while the word for fight actually refers to an armed conflict and carries a violent image. It seems that within the churches to which James wrote, there was conflict of varying degrees of intensity to all-out brawls. Interestingly and importantly, James isn't referring to conflicts and quarrels in the world around them. He's not writing of battles in the community or on the national scene. He's not talking about politics or about public um, relations. He's not talking about foreign affairs. With microscopic intensity, he focuses the lens of his pen on issues within the church. And so must we focus our attention this morning. It would be easy instead to apply this text to the larger culture around us, to step back and remove ourselves from the scrutiny of God's word, to ask what causes violence in schools, what precipitates terrorism, what leads to mass shootings or racially charged hate crimes. And while there is a time and there is a place for each of these conversations, James is interested in this passage and what causes 
the fights, the conflicts between brothers and sisters in Christ. In January of 2006, Australian scientists discovered the cause of a mysterious, mysterious disease that had killed thousands of Tasmanian devils on the island state of Tasmania. Just in case you were interested, the scientists actually initially believed that deaths were caused by a virus that these Tasmanian devils had come down with. However, their research ultimately uncovered a rare fatal cancer. They named it Devil Facial Tumor Disease, or DFTD. What is strange, according to Anne-Marie Pierce, a scientist who studied this, is that the abnormalities in the chromosomes of the cancer cells were the same in every tumor. That means the disease began in the mouth of a single sick devil. That individual devil facilitated the spread of DFTD by biting its neighbors when squabbling for food which, according to Pierce, is a natural devil behavior. Devils jaw wrestle, and they bite each other a lot, usually in the face and around the mouth, and bits of the tumor broke off of the one devil and stuck in the wounds of another. Over the course of several years, infected devils continued to inflict deadly wounds with their mouths, and consequently the disease spread at an alarming rate, ultimately wiping out about 40% of the population of these Tasmanian devils. A similar fate threatens every church whose members persist in the devilish behavior of wounding their neighbors. Having only paragraphs before addressed the dangers of the tongue, James applies the horror of the wars that he speaks of as he bookends this passage referring to these wars with other words in verses 11 through 12, where he implores believers not to employ the weapon of the tongue in this war. He writes this at the end of the passage we read, speak evil, do not speak evil against your brothers, for the one who speaks evil against his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. And James reminds the readers then and us today that there is only one lawgiver, there is only one judge, and you and I are not him. We use and misuse that phrase, judging others, all too frequently in the church. Let me begin by saying there is a time and a place for proper judgment. It's, it, there is a time and a place for distinguishing good from evil. The kind of judgment that is good is that which discerns good fruit from bad fruit. The kind of discernment that can differentiate between orthodox and heretical teaching. But James' point in this passage is not to draw out what proper judging looks like, but rather to get after the type of judging that adds fuel to the fire of the wars that exist within the body of Christ. Throughout Scripture, we are warned time and again about this dangerous and ungodly judgment, which we as Christians all too often practice. We're warned about superficial judgment, Passing judgment based on appearance is wrong, John 7, 24 reminds us. Proverbs 18, 13 tells us that jumping to conclusions before investigating the facts is also wrong. And Simon the Pharisee drew Jesus' rebuke for judging a woman based on her appearance and reputation in Luke chapter 7. We're also warned in Scripture about hypocritical judgment. Jesus confronts hypocrites in Matthew 6, and then he tells us not to be a hypocrite, and he tells us in that same passage in Matthew 7, 1, not to judge others. 
Paul warns us that pointing out the wrongdoing of others while ignoring our own faults brings condemnation on ourselves in Romans 2.1. Scripture again teaches that harsh, unforgiving judgment is wrong. Jesus said in Matthew 7.2 that in the same way we judge others, we ourselves will be judged. You see, my friends, time and time again, the witness of Scripture is clear. Mercy must triumph over judgment. Listen to me, church, one of our greatest faults as evangelical, biblically-minded Christians is the way in which we judge others, placing ourselves above Jesus' mercy and looking down with a critical spirit on the lives of others. And we are not exempt from it here at Calvary Hills. I've heard it, and I've done it. We judge each other, and we judge the world around us. We are quick to point out the sins of others while all the while ignoring our own sins. We're quick to focus the lens of conviction on others while we ourselves hide in the shadows so as not to expose our own sin. Brothers and sisters, mercy must triumph over judgment. Our lives are to be based on God's mercy by which we have escaped judgment and received salvation. So must our walks be based on mercy. We must be vigilant about the ways in which we speak to each other and about each other. And we must not place ourselves in the seat of judgment which belongs to God and God alone. In addition to the wars with others, the second war in this narrative of our lives is the war with ourselves. Look back at verse 1. After asking the question, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you, James answers it. He continues, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? The term for passions here actually means pleasures. James says the reason that we get into fights, the reason that we get into quarrels, is because of the pleasures that we desire for ourselves. We're inflexible about issues within the church because we have a desire to have our own way. We maneuver for leadership positions out of a desire for status and admiration. We criticize others and gossip about others out of a desire to make ourselves look good. We exchange hurtful words from a desire to get even. The battles in which we engage with others are caused, James says, by a battle, a war within. The Apostle Peter put it this way in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. These passions and pleasures that both James and Peter speak of don't just manifest themselves in wars against each other. They literally war against our souls. They threaten us. And when we engage them and we allow the enemy to have a continued foothold in our lives, we participate in our own demise. If you're following along in your outlines, here's what I would suggest. Ultimately, the cause of both wars could be summed up in one word, and it is selfishness. That's what it all boils down to. Speaking of boils, I read this week of a fight that broke out over a freshly boiled batch of crab legs at a restaurant in Alabama. That's right, crab legs. The brawl went down at Meteor Buffet in Huntsville, Alabama, as diners were waiting to feast on crab legs. Off-duty police officer Gerald Johnson had just begun eating his meal when he heard the sound of a plate shattering. 
As he looked across the restaurant, he saw a woman that was in the process of beating a man. And he helped, helped break up that fight that involved these two who were using tongs as weapons against each other. When the fight was finally broke up, the woman said that she had gone after the other because he had cut in line in front of her. And I was here first. No one's going to get my crab legs before I do. As outlandish as a battle over crab legs might seem, the encounter illustrates how our selfish pleasures, our desires for things that we want, can contribute to the fights and the quarrels that we find ourselves in. So we know the cause, selfish desires and pleasures. What do we make of the outcome Two things happen as these wars rage, both within us and in our relationships. First, there are wrong actions. Look with me back at verse 2. You desire, James writes, and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Depending on the translation of the Bible that you use and have in front of you, this phrase may read differently. It's a difficult phrase for interpreters to handle because there's a punctuation issue. And regardless of how your translation reads, James' point here is that the desires that war within us lead us to wrong behavior, all the way to murder itself. Consider King David, whose desire was for the wife of another man, his desire for Bathsheba led him to commit adultery and eventually to commit murder. Just one example, we understand all too well that when we entertain and when we give credence to these desires, desire gives birth to action. It happens in our personal lives and it happens in the context of our church as a whole. The second outcome of these selfish desires warring against each other is that of wrong prayer. Wrong prayer. Listen to the end of verse 2 and verse 3. You do not have, James writes, because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You see, when these wars are left unchecked, they lead us to pray wrong. First of all, they may lead us not to pray at all. That's what James says in verse 2. We do not have because we do not ask. Forgetting how generous God is or how magnificently sovereign he is, we fail to rely on him to provide for our needs and instead acquiesce to our pride and believe that we are self-sufficient and perfectly able to carry, care for our own needs. Second, these desires lead us to the wrong types of prayer. We pray from wrong motives too often. Our prayers become all about ourselves. They become about what we want for our lives, what we want for the lives of our family members and those we care about. Too often, Christian brother or sister, you and I are guilty of self-centered prayer driven by our desires. Desires for health and wealth, desires for happiness rather than holiness, desires for our will, not for his will. And we must not expect God to answer our prayers when our motives are impure and focused on what we want rather than on what he wants. God is not some celestial Santa just waiting to rain down gifts on your life. God is not a, a heavenly vending machine where if you put the right prayer in, you'll get the product that you want out. He wants us to pray from a place of surrender to his magnificent providence and power. Left unchecked, our, way, our desires that wage war within us will lead us to act wrongly 
and to pray wrongly. There's one more war in this tale of three wars, one more battle that rages in the lives of the churches to whom James wrote and in our own lives and in our own church. It's the war with God. Listen again as James speaks of this war with God in verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's harsh language. Adulterous people. Those who have strayed from the faithful covenant to which Christ has invited them and called them by name to be his bride. And enemies of God. It's the same language Paul used in Romans 5.10 when he wrote, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Ladies and gentlemen, whether you realize it or realized it or not, we were all enemies of God. We were, and some of you still are, enemies of God. Some of you are still on the run, like fugitives of the law. Christopher Viataffa, a 27-year-old California man, decided to find out what the internet had to say about his existence. How many of you have ever done that? by the way, to be very bold enough to raise your hands. So after engaging in what's called, and I asked you that before I told you this, ego surfing, Viatafa discovered he was on a northern, on northern California most wanted website. According to police, Mr. Viatafa got into an argument in 2013 during a private party and then allegedly pulled out a handgun and fired several rounds into the ground before he was persuaded to leave. Viatafa may well have thought nothing more of the incident for years to come until he found his name on that website. And to his credit, he promptly surrendered to police. And now if you Google his name, you'll find him listed as a captured fugitive. Like Viatafa, countless men and women today are fugitives of God's law without even realizing it. Their sins have alienated them from God's presence and caused them to stand in defiance and opposition to his holiness. But alas, James isn't just talking about non-church members. He's addressing the church, and he does so with shocking terms. Adulterous people and enemies of God, he calls them. Those who call themselves Christians may, in fact, not have a saving faith. This is a theme we've visited several times over these past seven weeks now. There are those, Jesus said, who will cry out, Lord, Lord, but to whom Jesus will say, away from me, I never knew you. Those who profess to be Christians, who are actually practicing adulterers and enemies of God. James provides a litmus test, as it were, to help you look in the mirror this morning and to determine your position with God, to ascertain whether you're a friend of God or you're an enemy of God. And there are three parts to this test, three indicators, and we're going to refer to them as acts of fraternization. That's a big term, and it's one that we use in the military to speak of inappropriate relationships, oftentimes between an officer and an enlisted member. It's applicable in this text, for these are relationships that should not be entered into in the life of a Christian. First, we find fraternization with the world. With the world, James writes, doing so is being at enmity with God. The world here does not refer to the created order or to the earth, but instead to the systems of humanity, to its institutions, to its structures, to its values and mores that are organized without God. 
To fraternize with the world means to enter into relationships that influence your values, your morals, and your priorities away from God rather than toward God. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't be friends with unbelievers. It doesn't mean you shouldn't hang out with those who are unsaved. Rather, it means our hearts are to belong to our Savior, and we should feel out of place in any of those worldly systems without God. When we enter a social setting that is organized without God, we should feel like a fish out of water. When we're visiting at the water cooler or in the break room or in the lunch area, we should know we are aliens and strangers because our values and our priorities are at odds with those around us. And if you don't feel uncomfortable, if you have no problem fitting into those godless environments and your heart is not at odds with the morals that you see depicted, you may be guilty of fraternization with the world. The second indicator that you're at war with God is fraternization with the flesh. Having already warned us about the desires, the pleasures that war within us, we learn that these desires are in direct conflict to the Spirit of God and what His Spirit wants to do. His is a spirit that yearns jealously over the spirits that He made to dwell in us, James says. It's a confusing phrase even to scholars, but verse 5 seems to indicate that God jealously desires for us to belong wholeheartedly to him. A message that we read throughout the Old Testament. Every fiber of our being should belong to him. Our actions, our attitudes, our passions, they need to be his 100%. And when we fraternize with the pleasures and the desires of the flesh, and we don't surrender our complete allegiance, we're guilty of being enemies of God. The third indicator is not so subtle. It's fraternization with the devil. Now, I don't think any of us this morning would raise our hand and say, yes, this week I have fraternized with the devil. And while we would never think that we're guilty of doing so, the sin that causes this fraternization is pride. And pride was the very sin, Isaiah 14 tells us, caused Satan to fall from heaven. Quoting Proverbs 3.34, James reminds us that God opposes the proud. See, God isn't passive. God isn't indifferent to the haughty, to those who, like Satan, set themselves up to be glorified in his place. No, God actively opposes the proud while giving grace to the humble. And so if you regularly fall prey to the sin of pride, you just may be fraternizing with the devil. Three wars, not fictitious and far from over, they linger and will continue to linger until Christ comes victoriously to defeat the enemy. The war with others and the war within, caused by desires and leading to wrong actions and wrong prayers, and the war with God, which rages as long as we fraternize with the world, with our flesh, and with the devil. Ladies and gentlemen, as we prepare to close this morning, I want to share with you some good news. Because this has been a heavy text. There is a way to victory. And while there is a spiritual war that continues to be waged, while we wrestle not against flesh and blood, Paul tells us, but against those spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, while the battle is not over, the victory has already been won. And there's only one way to experience it. It's through total surrender. 
If you're here this morning and you're tired of the wars with others, the war with yourself, and the war with God, my friend, I have great news for you. Your enemy has already been defeated. I've said it before, but it bears repeating what you experience in the lingering effects of sin in your life, in the trials and the hurts of this world, is nothing more than the thrashing around of the enemy like a serpent on whose head Christ has placed his foot. The enemy knows that his days are numbered and he's doing everything he can to take as many as possible down with him to his demise. And the battle may still be raging, but the war has been won once and for all. And the surprising, the surprising and startling way to experience the victory in Jesus is not through a bloody, violent battle. Rather, it's through surrender. And James gives us four simple steps to do that. Listen to them. First, submission to God. Submit yourselves, James says, Therefore, to God. The word means to place yourself under his lordship and to commit yourself to obey him in all things. Second, resistance to the devil. Choosing not to fraternize with the devil is one thing, but we have to take it another step. We must choose to resist him actively. It means we must refuse to bow to his authority. It means we must stand up against him. And when we do that, James says, he will flee. The third is to Choose your proximity to your Savior. I love this phrase in this verse. James says, draw near to God and he will do what? Draw near to you. If you want to live a life of surrender and victory, you must live a life of close proximity to your Savior. And much of the Bible, drawing near to God refers to the act of worship, but it seems to be here more than that. It's about staying close to him in order that you might resist the devil. It brings to mind the idea of praying without ceasing and fellowshipping with, it, with your Lord day in and day out. We have a lot of young people here. Young people, I want to say something to you as a young person this morning in the position you're in. You need to start drawing near to God now. There is perhaps no better habit, no better practice that you could get into as a young person as an elementary school, middle school, high schooler, college student, than finding daily time to spend with your Lord. Read your Bible. Spend time in prayer. There is no better way to ensure victory in Jesus than to be in close proximity to him day in, day out. Finally, the last step is to have humility of your heart. In contrast to the pride of the devil, the kind of life that a Christian should live is one characterized by humility, by a constant recognition that it is only by the grace of God that we are saved. It is only by the mercy of God that we are free from judgment. And but for the grace of God and his sovereign election, his choice of us, we would be desperately lost in our sin. We deserve none of what we have. I deserve none of what I have. We must carry ourselves with a humility of heart and action. And if we'll obey these four instructions, God will draw near to us, he'll cleanse us, and he'll forgive us. And then, and only then, will the war cease. For then, we will not be at war with God. So, we will not be at war with ourselves, and we will not be at war with others. 
ultimately, peace with others has to begin with peace with God. Solomon wrote in the book of Proverbs 16, 7, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Only peace with God can bring the peace that we need in our lives, in our world, and in our church. Before I close in prayer, I want to bring this to a point of crystal clear application for us as Calvary Hills Baptist Church. As you know, if you've been here any amount of time now, we are in the process of a pastoral search. And your pastoral search team is at the end of that process. They've labored faithfully since March, praying through and reviewing close to 200 resumes. And soon, you're going to have a chance to hear from them. In the not-too-distant future, you're going to have a chance to meet the man that they have prayerfully discerned to be called as our next pastor. And once you do, you're going to have a chance to vote for that work. In order for him to be called, that decision is going to require at least a 90% affirmative vote from our members. Anything less will send our church back to the drawing board. And while I'm not here to tell you how to vote when that day comes, you need to prayerfully discern that. I want to encourage you to remember these three wars as you go into that time. I want to encourage you to remember that if you find yourself in a place of conflict with others over this, to check your heart. Ensure that your conflict is not driven by your selfish desires and pleasures for what you want. And the best way to prepare yourself and ensure that that's not happening and that you're not going to engage in the type of backbiting and infighting that are too frequently a part of churches in times of transitions like this, the best way, no, the only way to live at peace with the absence of war is to be at peace with God. So church, I implore you, over these next few weeks, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil when he tempts you to open your mouth and say something that is hurtful against another brother or sister of Christ. Draw near to God in prayer and devotions and walk humbly with him. Because if we'll do that together as a church, God will move through this process to empower us to continue to be in mission as we boldly proclaim Christ and represent him in the world. Would you pray with me?